This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Howdy, folks. It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. On this show, Bean and I, who are both accomplished cannabis journalists and media makers, go through one of the more fascinating points in the very long history of human-cannabis relations. I myself have no prior knowledge of the story we're about to hear. Bean has written and researched it, and he's about to tell it to me. Bean, what do we got going on today? All right, well, I'm going to need you to roll up a real fatty for this one, like a comically large joint, Mm. because I'm about to tell you a story about sort of larger-than-life weed heroes, two friends who uh, just took their love of comedy. Tell me if this sounds familiar. They took their love of comedy. Mm -hmm. They took their love of weed. They turned it into art, and they changed the world. I'm pretty excited to hear about this. I mean, there's so many different people that it could be. I'm trying to think of legendary weed duos, and there's definitely a handful that come to mind. I'm pretty freaking excited. All right, well, I think you got to get started on RJ if you're Mm -hmm. uh, listening at home or wherever you are, and you want to hit pause and catch up and roll something up or pack a bowl or roll a blunt, we'll be right here waiting for you. But otherwise, how do you feel? I feel pretty good, man. I think we might be ready for another great moment in weed history. Spoke media. (sighs) You ready to hear a story? Yeah, man, I'm stoked. Let's go. All right, here we go. A lot of famous people love weed, famously, but there are really only two celebrities who got famous for their love of weed. After graduating from California State University with a writing degree in 1967, Richard Marin... Oh, yeah. Otherwise known as Cheech. Otherwise known as Cheech. uh, Fled the United States to avoid being drafted into the Vietnam War. Right. Wow. I did not know that, A, that Cheech had a writing degree, and B, that he was a conscientious objector, a draft dodger. Conscientious objector. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A draft, uh, there's a term, I don't remember. Yeah, I forget Uh, what the word is. Resistor. But yeah, so have you ever seen the Celebrity Jeopardy episode where Cheech goes on and crushes it? Cheech. Who is Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. Cheech. What is Pillow Talk? Right. Cheech. What is Never Never Land? Yes. Cheech. What is Camelot? Yes. Cheech again. Who is Al Pacino? Right. Cheech. What is a baster? Yes. You're the winner today. Your charity will get 50000 Dude, that is so awesome. What a great moment for Stoners. That is truly a great moment in weed mm-hmm. history unto itself. Yeah, that's almost a mini moment. And uh, I think our friends at Spoke could probably spice in a little audio for us of uh, Cheech just crushing it. So it's 1967. Imagine you just got your college degree. And instead of starting your life as a young person who came from a, a, a poor immigrant neighborhood, 
now your first concern is, shit, do I have to go fight this war that I don't want anything to do with? Uh, so he secretly crossed the border into Canada, as many people did. And he ended up in Vancouver, where he landed a gig reviewing records for a music magazine, oh. which is how the man, now known as Cheech, first came into contact with a local musician. Any guesses who that might be? Was it Tommy Chong? Uh, Tommy Chong, who oh. was born in Edmonton, Canada, uh, but he dropped out of high school when he was 16 to tour with rock bands. Now we have these two forces Changonium and Chicharium. <laughs> Fusing <laughs> together Fusing in the crucible of life known as British Columbia. Yeah. And then I think THC, a little trace CBDs in this Petri dish. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's see what happens. Yeah, so something is taking shape. And at this time, is there a prevalence of, of stoner humor, weed-related humor in the ether at all? They're stoned people being funny. <laughs> and that's, we're a part of a real long tradition in yeah, that. There's 10,000 years of stoned people being funny. But there's, like I said, these are the first people who really got, now uh, that's not taking away from them as performers and comedians of people who, they didn't just get stoned and become famous. Right. Uh, they did all the things that any performer has to do to succeed, but they were a part of this culture. They represented the culture. They told jokes within the culture and they became like kind of the face of it. And so that's all, you know, a new phenomenon. You know, there's, mm. if you, you could look at jazz culture and say somebody like Louis Armstrong, one of the biggest musical icons of the 20th century, loved weed, wasn't shy about it, but that's not how he became well-known. right. right. These guys were literally about to use their love for weed to inspire their content and hit it big. Once again, this sounds really fucking familiar. And uh, <laughs> I know you can't see, but the, the joint is comically large and coming my way. And I think you're feeling good about that decision now, right? I really am, man. And I appreciate the, you know, the foresight on that one. Because otherwise I would have rolled a regular size mm -hmm. joint. We would have talked about... Cheech and Chong smoking a regular size joint. That's not Can't acceptable. Happen. No. Initially, the iconic stoner duo at the center of today's tale bonded over music, like we said. Mm. But it was a shared love of improv comedy and getting high that would make them stars. Okay, gotcha. So, so they started out doing improv. Yeah. So Tommy Chong, before Cheech gets to Vancouver, had already formed a group called City Works Improvisational Group, uh, which Cheech joins. Ah, oh, okay, gotcha. So these guys are doing improv. They're performing at little clubs, I'm guessing, all over Vancouver. And they've yet to be discovered or strike gold or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, so the good news is they have no trouble booking gigs. The bad news is they are hardly the main attraction at their own gigs, as Cheech explained to Rolling Stone in an interview. Mm. So this is Cheech. I'm not going to call him Cheech Marin. I'm going to, we're not like friends, but I'm just going to call him Cheech. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're, you know, they're like Cher or Prince. <laughs> you can call either of those guys by that one name and it works. Yeah. Yeah. Eponymous, yes. uh, titular, whatever the word is. Mononymous. <laughs> so uh, Cheech, our friend, friend of the podcast, tells Rolling Stone, we started in a strip bar that Tommy's family owned in the worst part of Vancouver. Ah, yep. There you go. So, this I can actually relate to because I host a weed-themed burlesque show called Marijuana Madness. And 
it's a lot easier than comedy because uh, in between me doing jokes, there's beautiful women dancing in, in scanty clothing. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's a great place to work out some material, but uh, you're certainly not the main attraction when that's <laughs> happening. Well, that is actually a really, really long tradition. If you get into the history of stand-up, mm. that was the first place that stand-up was really performed. Really? Yeah, was to be in between the acts at burlesque shows and 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 even places where there wasn't full nudity. But, you know, you're going back to the 40s and the 50s. um, And that's why there's this sort of body tradition to stand up. That's why stand-ups are afforded the ability to say things that other entertainment didn't. Like uh, Lenny Bruce, as an example. You know, he was persecuted by the government for his speech. He started out working at these burlesque houses where anything went. You know, you could say whatever you want because the next act was strippers. But as soon as he was on TV, his shit was too hot. Yeah, and they and they persecuted him. And, and you know, there's just, if you read the old accounts, there's a lot of great stories of these original stand-ups who were really supported by that community of dancers. Like, it went both ways. Um, wow, nice and, shit. Uh, yeah, so they're they're uh, right in this. And as as Cheech explains, they're working in this strip bar Tommy wanted to do improv theater, but he also wanted to keep the topless element at the same time in order to preserve the audience that was already there. So what does the audience look like at one of these early uh, Cheech and Chong shows? I would guess it's a mix of people with, like, bell bottoms and really red eyes and people with, like, trench coats and dark glasses. I gotcha. <laughs> Fun crowd. Yeah. <laughs> You're bringing together your pervs, your comedy fans, yeah. your burnouts, you know. Our kind a, of crowd. A heady mix. <laughs> <laughs> um, so facing lots of stage time, because this is Tommy uh, Chong's family's club. Ah. So they're like the house act. Okay, gotcha. So they kind of have the run of the house in a way. They can get away with uh, more crazy shit. Yeah. And and so they've got lots of stage time and low expectations, giving Cheech and Chong the chance to hone their craft and fuse their superpowers, each pushing the other to new comedic heights. So they're fusing their superpowers, also performing in a space that was already X-rated, meant no need to self-censor. And in time... They become like a local sensation in Vancouver. So it becomes a hit and they and they decide, let's take this show on the road. And they're doing like 300 dates a year, club dates for a few years on this sort of low level touring circuit. Wow. So the work continues truly, uh, you know, like once you you make it past the hometown hit level, it's time to start touring. 300 dates a year is a pretty hefty schedule. So this is across Canada and the United States? Yeah, they're going anywhere. People will will have them and, and I'm sure pay them enough to do a show and move on. And it's like, yeah, that big fish in a small pond period is like probably this beautiful thing where, you know, it's your club, it's your crowd, yeah. you're killing it. Everybody's psyched. And But if you want to go to that next level, like you said, you, you go to... Uh, place nobody knows you and you're right back to having to work hard and win them over. And I think this just makes them better and better. You know, Amazing. And they're going by Cheech and Chong at this point. Right? They're going by Cheech and Chong. And not coincidentally, this is also the period of time where weed is going from very subcultured 
to more mainstream. You know, in the 70s, it's mm-hmm. not like everybody smoked, but a lot more people smoked than in the late 60s. Cheech and Chong proved that there's an audience for this and dragged the rest of the entertainment industry along with them. And they did it in a very indie, you know, ultimately they made studio movies, Mm -hmm. but from a completely Cheech Chong place. Yeah. You know, they didn't sign up to let somebody else create their vision of Cheech Chong. They said, and, and they had this to pull back on. We've been doing 300 dates a year. This shit works. Yeah. You know, they proved it. Yeah, yeah. They tested it out. But at this point in the story, these guys have not been handed the keys to a movie yet. <laughs> I'm pretty excited <laughs> no, to see I've... how the fuck that happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they always talk about your big break, right? And But it's always your big break after you worked your ass off for years. Yeah, of yeah. course. Uh, which they did. Which they did. So... Finally, they make it to Los Angeles for a kind of a high-profile performance, and they attract the attention of legendary record producer Lou Adler. Oh, wow. No kidding. So Lou Adler, definitely a familiar name when you think about music in like the 60s and 70s. What's this guy's story again? Yeah, Lou Adler is like a legend in the music business. He's a producer. He worked with Mamas and the Papas. He produced Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he's like sort of like the quintessential 70s cool guy record producer. So this is what uh, Lou Adler says. The first time I saw Cheech and Chong was at the Troubadour, just like a classic club here in L.A. Right, yeah, I've heard of it. It was Hootenanny Night. You know what Hootenanny Night is? No. <laughs> what is what pray tell is Hootenanny Night? <laughs> it's like the precursor to comedy nights and stuff. It it was like there'd be music. It was like a variety show uh, oh. for like people who were slightly cooler than the 1950s. <laughs> wow, that is so severely uncool. What an uncool time. They're like. Oh, well, we were going to go down to the barn and there's a hootenanny tonight. And it's like, there's like someone showing an ankle and like twisting it, you know, while while a guy like plays a jug or something. That was the extent of partying at one point. A hootenanny. All right. So there's still hootenannies going on. They're uh, definitely a little bit wilder than the original hootenanny, I'm sure. But uh, so what was this like? This ain't your grandpa Jebediah's hootenanny. This is a hootenanny with cocaine. (laughs) I'm quite sure it was. Uh, (laughs) So he's saying, I'm at the Troubadour. It's hootenanny night. Tommy and Cheech were on stage going around in circles, smelling each other's butts, doing their dog act. And I said to myself, I've got to record these guys. (laughs) Okay, nice. That's pretty dope that he saw something in that. You know what I mean? Lou Adler's clearly an open-minded guy. Yeah, and he's there and the crowd loves it. You know what I mean? That's the other thing. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah, yeah. Always. And I think as a performer, that's just that moment you wait for when somebody taps you on the shoulder and is a real deal and says, you got the goods. Yeah, you got what it takes. (laughs) It's like, you're a star, you know? And he's still like wearing a dog nose and thank you. (laughs) So in- Amazing. So it happens. That's that's it. The big break. Well, just to record an album. Gotcha. Um, and and comedy albums are 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 blowing up now. Um, right. And that's sort of a new thing, you know, too. The idea of a full length comedy album, and it's it's bringing uh. comedy to people. There's really not comedy clubs. There's a couple, but uh. it's not a nationwide thing that you can go to a comedy club and hear stand up. Mm-hmm. So when they start putting albums out, 
uh, it not only makes people into stars, it creates an audience for live comedy. That idea that you can put out a comedy album and, and chart high on Billboard is really new. And you can imagine how, you know, that's a big part of what builds that first comedy boom in America. Right. Wow. No kidding. So Cheech and Chong get their opportunity to take part in this whole thing. And they're doing pretty much full-fledged stoner humor at this point, right? It is as full-fledged. I don't think anybody has ever fledged their <laughs> stoner comedy more Fuller fully. Than these guys. <laughs> if there's a needle from unfledged to fledged, they're yeah. in the green. <laughs> yeah. Really, it was full-fledged stonerism. I mean, check out this clip. Oh, it's a heavy-duty joint, man. Oh, it looks like a toothpick, man. No, it's not a toothpick, man. No, hey, it is a toothpick, man. Oh, man, it's just... It is a toothpick. I just thought I'd throw that in there <laughs> to see, like, be like, what, what's Spoke going to put in there? You know what I mean? I think it'll work. Yeah, I think it'll work too. <laughs> they could pretty much pull any random Chicha Chong clip. Yeah, exactly. And it would work. <laughs> Is that a joint, man? God damn, looks like a quarter pounder, man. <laughs> you could really just cover your eyes and reach into the barrel of Chicha Chong clips <laughs> on that one. And you'll probably pull out something pretty fucking stony. Mostly Maui Wowie, man. Yeah. But it's got some Labrador in it. What's Labrador? It's dog shit. What? Yeah, my dog ate my stash, man. But amazing. Okay, so that was the first album. Was that Up in Smoke? What was the first Cheech and Chong album? So in 1971, Adler produced a comedy album just called Cheech and Chong, eponymous. Mononymous. Uh, that, featured, uh, that featured the act's best characters and bits, including Waiting for Dave... Who is it? It's it's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with me. Who? Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Come on, man. Open up. I think the cops Dave's not here. Shout out. My stepdad, Hugh, tells me the same. He he repeats that bit to me all the time. He thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. He's, he was a hippie, like, back in the day, so he loved Cheech and Chong. And he always tells me the Dave's not here bit. He's like, hey, it's Dave. Dave's not here, man. <laughs> Shout out you, Hugh. Nice. Well, he's yeah. giving you his bona fides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the album comes out, it climbs the Billboard charts, and gets nominated for a fucking Grammy. Get the fuck out of here. So the first Cheech and Chong album, self-titled album, was nominated for a Grammy. Yep. That is amazing. For best comedy album? For best comedy album. And it's, or maybe spoken word or whatever the category was. Uh, wow. But then it's almost like, you know, if you have a band that you love and you're like, my God, that first album had every single fucking song on it. So yeah. It's because they were working on it for 10 years when no one cared. And they put all the best songs from 10 years on one album. Totally. And that's like this. They've been a club act for four years. No one... If you haven't seen them live, you've never heard any of this, and they just drop it on the world all at wow. once, fully formed and really, really well-honed act. And the timing's just perfect because so many people are getting into weed. 
Wow, look at that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think you're either going to vote for them or you're not if you have a vote in the Grammys. You know, it was like a <laughs> referendum yeah. on a, a statue to Cheech Chong, and the industry was probably yeah. Dude, not gra- quite ready. Grammy voters in 1971 who voted for Cheech and Chong in that category, shout out you, Quincy Jones, I'm looking at you. <laughs> All friends of the podcast. Uh and so even more successful comedy albums uh, follow after this. They sell big, they're popular, and it makes them a n- national sensation. They're household names in any house that has a bong. And uh, even a lot of them, if it, you don't have to smoke weed to know who Cheech and Chong is. At or this to point. find it funny. They kind of made weed humor of that era universal in a lot of ways. You know what I'm saying? And that's, they transcended the... The subculture, you know what I mean? The counterculture, and they they sort of crossed over. Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't smoke weed who think it's funny. There's people who obviously have used Cheech and Chong to try to deride weed culture because they don't get satire and they don't get that yeah. things are being played for comedic effect. And they're just like, I mean, yeah, the most reductive take possible. And if you're already invested in being against weed, yeah, you know, and that's something that goes back and forth. And even in the weed movement, mm-hmm. you know, there's always been this strain of it that's like, well, we have to distance ourselves from the Cheech and Chong. Right. And this actually brings up a very interesting point. I think a lot of people use Cheech and Chong as the stereotype of, oh, like that's the stoner culture that, you know, says, oh, weed makes you slow or weed makes you dumb or something like that. And that's what we have to get away from. But I think what they're missing is that it's not like at the time that Cheech and Chong did what they did, it was completely innovative. We just discussed the whole history of how This wasn't a thing if they didn't generate this first avatar for stoners. Dude, it's like having representation in uh, film and television. You know, it's like when I see a brown guy, if I'm a young brown guy and I see, you know, a brown guy in a film, it feels possible for me. In the same way, imagine being a stoner at a time when, you know, uh, televised media is, you know, is all the rage and not seeing someone like yourself. But then suddenly... Seeing someone like yourself, you know what I mean, represented in that way, as a stoner, you would feel that that's your avatar. You would be like, oh, wow, it is possible. I can be a stoner on TV. You know, shit. I mean, you and I saw Cheech and Chong and thought that, thought that, and like, you know, now uh, that's, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. And so now they've got all these successful albums. So what comes next? Yeah, I mean, one of the most iconic stoner things pretty much fucking ever, Up in Smoke. Their very first film, Up in Smoke, but, you know, we got to take care of a little something first. Okay, cool. Yeah, we got to roll a joint. We got (laughs) to... We got to get paid to smoke weed. (laughs) It's, uh, It's our burden and our blessing. Good shit. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to talk about Up in Smoke. I take a toke. All my cares go up in smoke. <laughs> up in smoke. Smoke weedia. <sighs> Whew. Okay, we're back. We've learned how Cheech and Chong had their 
rise and made it all the way to the Grammys. And now they've got their first film up in smoke. It's about to happen. And I mean, this movie is absolutely insane. It completely defies film structure. You know, uh, Joseph Campbell, just (laughs) go fuck yourself. Story that doesn't make any sense in this thing. Uh, It really is just about a journey to find cannabis. It's one of the most fascinating hour and 45 minutes movies (laughs) that you're ever going to see. Bean, how did Up in Smoke come to be? Let's let's Joseph Campbell out the story of Cheech and Chong. Yeah, perfect. Finally <laughs> so give we, it some structure. I think we know what their uh, talisman is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their, their sort of uh, sacred quest yeah. is, is, is weed. And, you know, their origin stories bring them together in a time and place. They realize there's a bigger journey for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to go out on the road. And now this is sort of the moment that they're really going to take the culture by storm. Because the comedy albums are only reaching weed culture. Right. And everyone's realizing, whoa, weed culture is way bigger than we thought. Right. But the movie brings them to the world, you know, right. in a way that only a movie can. So who is crazy enough to give Cheech and Chong a movie deal? Well, that's a good question because Lou Adler is sort of the one who produces the movie oh. with them. And yeah, as he said, I'm out there pitching in Hollywood of the 70s, the first ever stoner comedy starring somebody uh, who's Mexican-American and somebody who's from Canada and Asian descent and, you know, nothing that is making anybody's cash registers ring except for the fact that there's all these albums backing it up. Right. So when the time came to write a script for Up in Smoke, Cheech and Chong originally envisioned a kind of like variety show format that would bring a wide range of the vignettes from their albums to life on screen. So when that approach proved unwieldy, they decided to focus on pairing Cheech's Pedro Dapacas character uh, with Tommy Chong's eternally befuddled Anthony Stoner, better known as Man. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so meaning... In the stage show, they were each doing a bunch of different characters. But for the movie, they each kind of selected the character that they were going to be throughout the entire movie. And I mean, perhaps had no idea that they were going to cement that (laughs) character as their persona. uh, I mean, for years and years to come. Well, imagine if they had made the movie about the dogs sniffing each other's butts. Hey, well, let's go down and taste some Fifi, man. Come on. I'm horny. I got to go poop. I honestly would definitely have watched that. (laughs) I would pay to see that in a theater. I would probably watch that too. And then when Tommy Chong wrote a song called Up in Smoke and played it for his partner in crime, they immediately knew it would be the title track. Uh, They also decided almost all of the action would be filmed in the moment and on location in East L.A., the predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood where Cheech Marin was born and raised. So this is this is what he said about it. Uh, he said, in Up in Smoke, you get to see parts of L.A. that you never saw on TV. And so, like what you were yeah. talking about, being young, not seeing a representation of yourself, mm-hmm. it, it, you're being written out of existence, particularly if you're somebody who's interested in being part of entertainment. Um, yeah, true. And so he says, you go to these neighborhoods 
that were vilified or not understood or not even shown, which is the worst. They didn't even exist, but they did exist in our movie. It is it is definitely a story that you start you start out in like Malibu or something, right? And uh, you know, and you see Chong is like from privilege. But very quickly you exit that world and you enter the world of Cheech. You know, he's Chong's hitchhiking. He tricks Cheech by making himself look like a beautiful woman, <laughs> a hitchhiking. Hey, you ain't a chick. Yeah, I know, but listen, that's the only way I can get anybody to stop, man. And then after that point, you are in Cheech's world. You're in like a quote unquote seedy underbelly, but it's filled with kind of fun and zany characters. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like an inviting place in a lot of ways, you know? It's a community. Yeah, absolutely. And it was never being portrayed at all. And to the extent that it was being talked about, you know, it wasn't from that perspective and from an insider's perspective. You know, when we talk about this neighborhood in East L.A. and this community of Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants, you know, it's definitely important to point out that that was one of the earliest communities targeted by the war on Marijuana, as it was called with the H still, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, back in the Anslinger days. And uh, historically, cannabis persecution, the persecution over cannabis has targeted uh, black people and Mexican-Americans, Hispanic-Americans by and large. So it's really great that Cheech chose to shoot in his old neighborhood. It's really important to see those parts of L.A. in a movie because... You certainly see Hollywood. You certainly see all the landscapes around L.A. You know, you see a lot of different parts of L.A. in movies, but you rarely see East L.A. Uh, Cheech and Chong, Up in Smoke is one great example. And also a movie that Cheech did called Born in East L.A. Uh, You know, he definitely strongly represents his background in the work he does. And so now you've got a script. You got a location. And they managed to get about a million dollars from Paramount Pictures, which was really a small budget even then for a feature film. Mm-hmm. But they set out to make a movie. But they just don't make the movie that they actually sold to Paramount. No kidding. Okay, so this was, it, it strayed from the original script. Strayed is an understatement. <laughs> and so this is how they explained it. In an interview with High Times editor Ed Dwyer, who is a literal friend of mine and a friend of the podcast, was the first editor of High Times. I've heard his account of this. Uh, And so in 1980, so a bit after the fact, he's interviewing uh, Cheech and Chong. And the story is they're in a limousine riding around Hollywood smoking weed. And he says to them, you guys don't go in with a script when you make a movie? Mm -hmm. And Cheech says... Do you go in with a script when you get laid? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Chong follows up with, we made that mistake with our first movie, uh, Up in Smoke. Mm -hmm. We went in with a whole script and the studio biggie said, change this, fuck that, do some other thing. Mm. So we rewrote the script. But then when we went to make the movie, we just said, fuck it, burn the script. We shot what we felt like doing, and now we're big Hollywood stars. Wow, interesting. Okay, so that's a pretty ballsy move. You definitely risk uh, losing the ability to ever make a film again. But if it works, you know, you're a fucking legend. 
it's also from them of just saying we're not going to compromise on our vision. Yeah. And and they had the albums, they had the audience, so they weren't, you know, as thirsty as they would have been if they just got pulled out of obscurity to make this movie. This is their this is their story. They're the heroes of their own quests. Right. The the other thing is they're improv guys. Right. You know what I mean? So they're not they're not doing this for being lazy, mm-hmm. they're doing this because they're saying we need to play to our strengths. Yeah. And there's scenes in the movie that are, are improvised. There's whole subplots in the movie that were just things that happened along the way. So they go with their strengths. Amazing. Uh, so like they said, they become big Hollywood stars. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for them, while the film grossed over $44 million at the box office off a $1 million budget, do the math there. And so it was an instant hit. Hit. Uh, They talked about how they tested it in three places, and they picked like a college town, and then they picked like a squarish town, and then they picked like, I don't know, you know? Yeah. And they said it it killed in all of them, and people laughed at different parts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But And then it was just a hit when it came out. I bet. Everybody was waiting for it and didn't even know it. And when you talk to older heads, like, you know, I used to do the High Times events and stuff. People who who lived through that, when they see Tommy Chong walk into a weed event, Mm -hmm. like... They, they like, put a hand on their knee to steady themselves. Like, you know, because it was... Mm -hmm. They felt like they were part of this thing, and and there were only two people to point to. Um, yeah, man. So weed legends, weed legends. But they only make a million dollars to split between them off of this movie that makes forty four million dollars. Crazy. So they got a raw deal. Wait, did Lou Adler come out on top of this one? Well, (laughs) uh, this is where the split with Lou Adler comes in. And there was also, Lou Adler had one idea for how to end the movie, and Tommy Chong basically came in and directed what is the actual ending, the Battle of the Bands. It's a really fucking punk rock moment. It's iconic. And when you see that scene and it's like... He comes out in the fishnets and a tutu. And the whole crowd is there. And it's like now it plays as a period piece. Yeah. And you can really enjoy like the fashion and the vibe. And 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 because of the way they're shooting, you can see the hangout vibe of that. Yeah. It was not a vibe shooting that scene of like, it was like, all right, let's do this. Let's try that. And whatever is happening and you, it comes across and it gives you a sense of like what stoned LA in the seventies looked and felt like. Oh yeah, dude, the bands in the lead up, right? You're cutting back and forth between the action and between the bands that are going on before them at this battle of the bands all the audio you're hearing is that live audio. You are actually sitting there at a show. That is a really interesting scene. And I mean, like, this movie in general, really, I think it wins because of that ending. Like, the whole thing is pretty meandering and as confusing and weird and sort of stony and, you know, like, what the hell is going on the whole movie is, when it ends, you're like, you feel so good. You know, you really feel like you you enjoyed what you just watched. It resonates at this weird level. They nailed it. It's a hard thing to capture. You know, there's, there's very few drug movies that can do that. I would argue that, like, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is one of those. You know what I mean? 
but in a completely different way. But Cheech and Chong is the first movie to nail that, I think. Let me uh, drop like the most fun fact I uncovered researching Up in Smoke on you. Uh, let's hear it. So that cop's name? Yeah. Sergeant Sudenko? I really don't believe it. You guys are supreme idiots. I mean, how can you let a big green van slip right through your fingers? Uh-huh. Based on a real cop named Sergeant Sudenko no. from the Mounties in Canada who used to fuck with Cheech and Chong when they were living in Vancouver and try to, like, bust them for weed. Holy shit, that is fucking <laughs> insane. He became obviously famous for this and it followed him around for the rest of his life. Oh and my I, God. I read a couple of his obituaries, which only exist because of this. And it's like, you know, he, they took this person who fucked with them over their spirit essence <laughs> and turned it back on them so hard that the first sentence of his own uh, obituary was... Known for, you know, being mocked in Up in Smoke. Oh my God, that is so fucking good. So he becomes sort of a a, a national laughingstock of Canada and Cheech and Chong create an entirely new genre of film. And, and here's, so here's what Cheech says about that. Yeah. Uh, he says, we weren't ahead of our time. We were right of our time. Those determining the position of the culture thought these guys are an aberration. They'll make a movie and maybe they'll go away. But we didn't go with their plan. We were funny, we were social, and we were highly political depending on your inclination and your takeaway from our comedy. Like, we're political if you take it that way. And I think it gets into the difference between being overtly political and being subversive. Mm -hmm. When you see these scenes of them fucking with the cops and kind of pulling the pants down on authority... That's in a long tradition, and, and that's a really important tradition. And applying it to this oppressive system against weed was both really funny, but kind of pulls the rug out from under this authority and shows it for what it is. Mm -hmm. So for like example, I'm thinking of the scene where the family calls immigration on themselves. Oh, to get a ride to a wedding. Dude, that <laughs> shit is amazing. There's so many relevant things like that, actually. I mean, of course, there's that commentary on immigration, which speaks to like, you know, the East L.A., you know, uh, vibe. You know what I mean? That This is like definitely still a time when people are being deported for, for bullshit. And so, like, instead of telling a straight version of why that's fucked up, they just show the inherent absurdity of the situation in a way that is really funny and, and like I said, subverts authority rather than taking it on directly. Yeah. And uh, I think the best example is every time the cops get stoned, they start to question their own authority. Yeah, they become cool. Like, you know, like the guy who pulls them over, you know, on the motorcycle yeah. uh, when they're in the weed truck and they just sort of like, you know, he's standing there inhaling a little bit of weed smoke and then he just... Uh, you mind if I have a bite of your uh, hot dog? Oh, yeah, yeah, man. You can have the whole thing. <laughs> and then he leaves. You know what I mean? He just becomes cool. Then he's he dances. Like, yeah, he's and like he dances. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's that scene where Sedanko is explaining how they turn weed into a liquid and then back into a solid and they can form it into anything. I mean, it's, it's a really bizarre thing. It's like something between like 
cannabis extraction and, you know, like turning hemp into like building materials. Yeah, they kind of like predicted the future in some weird ways. Because when you see that scene mm-hmm. of where they're making, you know, uh, this product that they ultimately turn into this entire van made of weed. Yeah. It just, it's it's like an extraction lab. And then the idea that you can build solid things, you know, there's a hemp car now, a real hemp car. Yeah. And hempcrete is a is going to be a big building material. And uh, the hemp, uh, the farm bill that just passed is going to make hemp growing legal in all 50 states. Right. And I think we're going to see a lot more things made out of hemp. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was all there in Up in Smoke for yeah. us to see. So for, for Cheech and Chong, uh, more movies followed, but by the mid-1980s, the culture had changed. Reagan and not a friend of the podcast. Uh, oh. And the act had grown dated. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, I don't think Yellow Beard is on anybody's AFI. <laughs> <laughs> yellow Beard. You know it's over when you do a pirate one. Yeah. Uh, they hit one last high note in 1985 by joining forces on a hit novelty song called Born in East L.A., uh, uh, yeah. A parody of Born in the USA. Right. Um, but they suffered a, a pretty contentious breakup shortly thereafter. Oh, really? Yeah, it got, it got, uh, it, they feuded a bit. No shit. Over what? Uh, money and, and just, I think they the usual, disparaged huh? each other. You know, let's put it that way. The, the, sure. the, the friendship went away. Uh, or, you know, the business relationship came apart and, you know, it's a it's a, not an uncommon story. Yeah, yeah, no. And it was, you know, it's hard to go from being huge superstars to not really having a market for your yeah. work. So Cheech goes on to some pretty good mainstream acting gigs for himself. He's in uh, Tin Cup with Kevin Costner movie. Oh, yeah, the golf movie. Yeah, the best <laughs> movie about golf starring Kevin Costner <laughs> that I've seen. Uh then he's opposite Don Johnson in this TV buddy show, Nash Bridges. Nash Bridges. I was in here trying to think, like, which, like, fucking show, random ass show <laughs> is it that Cheech Marin is in? It's Nash Bridges. That's right. Yeah. So so Tommy Chong, uh, his biggest role post Cheech and Chong is basically like playing a version of himself on that 70s show. Yeah, he was a, he was the boss of... Kelso or Hyde or I mean one of those guys, whatever. But wow, yeah. Wow, you're like it's like when you're mentioning people I went to high school with that I don't remember. I'm like, oh yeah. Hyde. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I wonder what happened to that guy. I think he, I think he killed a trip. Now with Hyde, you don't want to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is the whole thing. Jekyll yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I still I still hang with Jekyll a couple times a year. I go visit my parents <laughs> and we'll just get back, you know, get together at the bar. But like 10, yeah. 30, 11, just get out of there. Jekyll was much cooler. Jekyll was way cooler. Uh, so the duo finally reconciled in 2003, and they had plans to reunite. But that's when Tommy Chong's bong manufacturing concern, mm. Chong's Glass, uh, was raided by federal law enforcement as part of Operation Pipe Dreams. Yep. Actor and comic Tommy Chong says he is linked to the FBI raids today in Newport and Claremont County's Union Township. And that was a massive sting operation across multiple states uh, that led to the arrest of 55 different people for selling drug paraphernalia. So on the morning of the raid, a dozen heavily armed DEA agents are sent to Tommy Chong's like nice ass house up in the hills 
where he's sleeping peacefully, yeah. uh, to pull their guns on him and drag him out of the house. And the first question any of the cops had is, is there any marijuana on the premises? Then they come up and they said, Mr. Chong, do you have any marijuana in the house? And I said, yeah. <laughs> where is it? This is every room in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Good fucking answer. Man, that's a real tragedy because after coming so far, you know what I mean? After really taking part in normalizing cannabis culture and, you know, it's so tragic that he had to deal with that as uh, an older guy, you know what I mean? And and a guy who had accomplished a lot and, you know, made his money and made his mark. The good news is, uh, by Tommy Chong's own account, he's pretty well-liked in prison. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet, man. That's a guy who's going to have an easy time in prison. You know yeah, I, mean? I don't think he did the hardest time. I mean, he was in prison, no doubt about it, and yeah. that sucks in nine months of your life that you don't get back. That's a long time. That's, that's a, a long, long time. time for glass pipes, jeez. But, you know, he's written a lot about that time, and, and he tried to make the most of it and tried to learn from the people he was in there with. And, and you know, he came out in good spirits. And I think a really nice thing is when he came out, who was waiting for him? Cheech. Cheech. His che old homeboy. His old homeboy was like, let's get the band back together. It's a testament to uh, the strength of a friendship forged in weed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the bonds, they grow sticky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, man. <laughs> so he's released. They get the band back together. They do a live comedy tour, and they start doing all kinds of media appearances together. Um, and, like, one of my favorites is recently uh, they went on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert together, like the talk show. So, gentlemen, marijuana has become mainstream now. That, that's great news, right? Actually, to have a laugh at the mainstreaming of cannabis after former Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner joined the board of a weed company. Yeah, no, crusty old Republicans like John Boehner are into it, man. <laughs> Pot's over, man. So, so you're not Dude, yeah, that was the most infuriating fucking thing in the world that, you know, somebody who had a hand in persecuting so many people uh, for cannabis is now going to cash in on it. That is a true fucking injustice. Uh, not a friend of the podcast. No, but, fuck John Boehner. But what's interesting is in this same way. So that's why... That's the the reason, supposedly, that Cheech and Chong are on Stephen Colbert to talk about this development in weed, you yeah. know? And so they go on the show, they go on Colbert, and in classic Cheech and Chong uh, style, they claim, okay, John Boehner's selling weed now, uh, pot's legal in California, it's not really cool or edgy, uh, so we're going to move on to, like, more outlaw acts than weed now. <laughs> like Stuff that's still illegal. Yeah, like now we're into unpasteurized dairy products. <laughs> awesome, man. Wow. Holy uh, shit. Well, really? that's fucking great, man. I, I'm so psyched that, you know, they're still homies. You know what I mean? Those guys are, are the original weed legends, man. You know, they, they, they really brought that culture to the entire fucking world. Yeah, and, you know, despite the uh, unpasteurized dairy jokes, in reality, their stoner humor rolls on today. 
Yeah, in you, man. <laughs> the modern king of weed puns. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll wear that crown. <laughs> uh, so more than 50 years after they first shared the stage, and, and here's how Chong summed it all up. And I think this will get to your cautionary tale thing and maybe uh, alleviate it a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy Chong said, whether you like us or hate us doesn't matter. We didn't do it for anybody but ourselves. When I act, I do a version of me. Can you imagine how much fun I've had being typecast as a stoner? Oh, man. Dude, that's so real, man. That's so real. And you know what? I'll take it. If I'm typecast (laughs) as a stoner in this life, uh, I'll take it because Tommy Chong is living evidence that it's not so fucking bad. It can have its ups and it can have its downs. But in the end... You still get to go through life doing exactly what you love and expressing yourself and puffing big, big, big clouds of smoke the whole time. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Bean. That was a really, really fun story. I got to learn so much more about one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen Up in Smoke, you should definitely go see it. But either way, hope you had fun. We'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed History. Thanks for listening. Y todo mis cares go up in smoke. Come on, let's go get high. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Brigham Mosley and Cody Hoffmacher with help from Reyes Mendoza and Kendall Lake. Special thanks to Gold Digger Studio. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GMIWH Podcast or shoot us an email at GMIWH Podcast at spokemedia.io. Special, special shout out to our patrons. Find us on patreon.com slash G-M-I-W-H underscore podcast where you can support the show and receive exclusive stuff. Fuck John Boehner. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.